Thank you, Jason, for leading us in prayer and, and the reading of the word. Thanks, Mike, for leading us in song this morning. It is so good to be here, to be gathered with you all this morning on the Lord's Day. What a blessing, as always. I hope you, everyone had a, had a good Christmas celebration. I hope uh, you got everything you wanted. If you, uh, if you woke up on Christmas morning and uh, found coal in your stocking and uh, your neighbor got a new car, this psalm is for you. <laughs> the book of Psalms is truly unique in all the books of Scripture. They are the songs of the people of God, their personal experiences, their praises, their prayers, complaints, even curses. And uh, at the same time, they are the very inspired, God-breathed words. The Psalms are precious to us because they cover for us the panoply of our experiences with our walk with God. But most importantly, the Psalms continually point us to Christ. In Psalm 73, we have a kind of autobiographical confession of the psalmist's struggle. His focus on the world drives him to despair, but God is faithful to him and intervenes and turns him back to God, back to his goodness. This psalm, while not messianic, nevertheless, is undergirded by hope in Christ and his faithfulness, giving us strength in the midst of affliction and the seeming inequities of life. So while the treasures of this world may be lost to us, the eternal riches of Christ are ours now. And while in this life we only know them in part, one day we'll know them in all their fullness. If I could put this psalm into one sentence, the main idea, boil it down, I would say that if we fix our eyes on the world, on worldly things, we lose sight of the hope and the riches that we possess in Christ. I'll repeat that. If we fix our eyes on the world, on worldly things, then we lose sight of the hope and the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. So we're going to follow the psalmist's path through this psalm. And I broke his journey down into five parts related to the condition of his vision, of his sight. So the, the first part is, is his confession, verses 1 through 3. Part 2 is his vision distorted, verses 4 through 12. Part 3 is his vision blinded, verses 13 through 17. This is where he hits the bottom, as it were. Part 4 is his vision restored, verses 18 through 20. And part 5 is his vision perfected, verses 21 through 28. I'd also like to point out the structure of this psalm. It might be helpful as we, as we go through it. This psalm... Uh, as most of the psalms do, they have a certain symmetry to them. 
And so we could I- illustrate this psalm in the form of a bee or, or in the form of a, or of a valley. We could look at it as a valley. So he starts out on top in verse 1, and he's looking at the goodness of God, and, and he takes this slide down, down into this steep valley, and he hits the bottom around verses 13, and, uh, and it's very dark for him, and he's in despair. And, but God is gracious to him, and he makes his way up, back up to the top, back into the light, and back into the goodness of God, where he sees God and all his goodness, just how good God is and how gracious he is. So let's pray here before we we dive into the rest of this psalm. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these songs these songs of your people that you have given us, these songs that, that your people have been singing for thousands of years, these songs that reveal you and your character and your goodness and your grace for your people and all that you have done for us. Father, we ask that you help us this morning as we go through this psalm and that you help us to see all that you want us to see and ultimately that we see your goodness we see your grace, and that our eyes would be firmly fixed upon you as they should be. Amen. So if you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 73 in your Bibles. Truly God is good to Israel. It's so basic a biblical truth. How could it ever come into question? Perhaps the psalmist affirms this because he's lost sight of God's benevolent, loving care for his people. It's as if if he wants us to be mindful of this truth before before we follow him on this dark journey. The reality of God's goodness, it's like guardrails on a dark, windy road. They keep us from going over the edge. So when we struggle with difficult circumstances, and, and we call into question God's goodness and love for us. We need to keep these things at the forefront of our minds to keep us from going off track. Truly God is good. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, verse 1. God is good and gracious to all his creation, but towards his people, he is exceedingly good. The riches of God's redemptive work in his people. All who have faith in Jesus far exceeds any temporal good that he does for people in general. I mean, it is infinitely exceeds the good that he does for all his creation. Those who are pure in heart are those whose hearts have been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. They are faithful to follow Christ and to love Him. We love His commands and we hate His sin. We hate our sins. It is not that we are absolutely perfect, but Christ is supreme in our hearts and we have cast away our idols, 
all those things that distract us from the glory of the Lord. Verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's lost sight of God's goodness because he is focused on earthly things, specifically the prosperity of the wicked. It caused him to stumble, to almost slip. It's the idea of coming under God's judgment if it were possible for God's elect. He uses a similar, similar picture to describe the wicked in verse 18 where he says that God has set them on in slippery places. He wants to emphasize for us just how serious sin is and how faithful Christ is to keep his people. Taking his eyes off God and desiring what others had led him to discontent, even the sin of envying the very temporary blessings of the wicked. In verses 6 through 12, we see the result. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jumped ahead a little bit. Um, it's true that God does bless those who don't trust him. Um, those who do not have saving faith in his son. We need, to never, we need to be careful that we never allow this fact to trip us up. Nothing compares in this world, nothing compares to what we have in Christ. No matter what good things there are, what good things we have, or what good things we don't have, in God's providence, he puts us where we're at. He has a psalmist exactly where he wants them to be. He has the wicked where he wants them to be. And he provides for each person according to his wise, holy, good, and sovereign providence. Part two, his vision affected he has a distorted view of reality. This is where we start our descent into the valley. In verses 4 through 12, the psalmist records for us how he viewed the wicked, the reason why he envied them. While the description of their prosperity and well-being is in terms that we don't normally use, it's not too hard to figure out. The psalmist's pain and affliction has him looking, through, looking at the prosperity of the unbelieving through rose-colored glasses. Everything about them looks good to him. They have a life of ease. The wicked are blessed, verses 4 and 5. They have no pangs until death, the psalmist says. They don't suffer in this life. And when they do, it's pe when they do finally die, it's peaceful. They just go peacefully. It's like, no problems. They're healthy. Their bodies are fat and sleek. It's a picture of health and vigor. They have more than enough for all their needs. They never lack anything. They are prosperous, verse 5. He says, they are not in trouble as others are. The things that hinder most people don't seem to touch them. Their crops are abundant. Their flocks and herds multiply. Everything just seems to go right for them. 
They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. It seems like nothing bad touches them. The economy is rough, and they always end up on top. They're taking their extravagant vacations. They drive the best cars. They own a big home or two. They have all the toys and more. We need to understand that this is an airbrushed photo. It's, it's, um, it's a very selective representation. When we're afflicted and in pain, suffering loss, it's easy for our view of the world to become distorted and to lose sight of God's perfect goodness towards us. So we look at the result of this prosperity on the wicked, verses 6 through 12. The wicked are prideful, verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace, he says. Pride for them is like an adornment that they want to show off. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look at all that I have. It's the pride of life, the boasting of what they have and, uh, and what they do. They're cruel and thoughtless. Violence covers them like a garment. In their arrogance and self-importance, they don't care who they hurt as long as they get their way. They are full of themselves and their hearts are given to evil. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Their prosperity allows them to be overindulgent, extravagant until their corruption overflows. They have no restraint, nor do they care. And they pollute everyone around them. They think of themselves as above others, verse 8. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. There is no respect for the sacred, no consideration for the things of God. They have no reverence, no humility. Instead of kindness, there is only malice and oppression. Unless, of course, restrained by the goodness of God. And we need to understand that, that God in His grace does restrain the evil of men. So not everybody is evil and wicked as they could possibly be. But the unbelievers are still wicked compared to the good standards that God has commanded all of us to be. They have no fear of God, verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Their wealth and their prosperity cause them to boast against everyone. <clears throat> against the very one who gave it to them. They boast against God. I mean, God is the one who has gave them, who has gave them the gifts and the good things that they have. And they boast as if they were the ones who, get, who, who produced them. They draw a following. They're kind of like celebrities. Verse 10, Therefore, his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. People are drawn to the successful, to the winners. Even the people of God can be blinded by the allure of riches 
and taken in. It seems everyone wants to be like them, hanging on every word, and they can't see or they refuse to see what they really are. They boast against God, verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're brimming with arrogance. They speak as if they were the creator of all things, as if they themselves were the source of their prosperity. To say such things is to question, even deny the very existence of God. Most people don't really say such things out loud, but they live just like there is no God, and their lives speak loud and clear. They, so he concludes, the wicked, the unbeliever, lives a charmed life, a trouble-free life. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. There you have it. The, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Doesn't God see what's going on here? Doesn't he know what the unbeliever is doing and saying? Doesn't he care? Or are there some things that are just beyond his control? No. No. Perish the thought. Not in a million years. Not ever. God knows what the unbeliever is up to. He knows where the psalmist is at. He knows where we're at. He knows where you're at today, this very minute, right now. Nothing escapes his attention. Nothing is out of his control. Remember, our God is good. His faithfulness will never fail. You read Psalm 136. It's a, it's a testimony to God's faithfulness. 28, 28 verses, and each verse has a refrain. You know, his, fa his faithfulness is forever. His loving kindness is forever. A testimony to God's goodness. We're now going to come to see just how things, how dark things have gotten for the psalmist. It's part three. His vision is blinded. He hits rock bottom, verses 13 through 17. So how bad does it get? What is taking his eyes off of God and focusing on the prosperity of the wicked led him to conclude? He's ready to give up on God. He's ready to throw away his faith. He thinks that his faithfulness to God has been of no benefit. We're at the bottom of the valley now. And things are dark. It's really dark for the psalmist. Verse 13, he laments his faithfulness to God. He says, all in vain. 
I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying all my effort in pursuing Christ in being faithful is worthless. Such a negative impact, such is the negative impact that a sinful perspective can have on us. To covet the possessions of others, to envy others for the temporal blessings that God has been pleased to give them, be they righteous or unrighteous, be they believing or unbelieving. To envy the wicked like this would be like envying the people who are still on board the Titanic because of all its luxury while it's just slowly sinking into the dark, icy waters of the North Atlantic. And you're, poor you, you're stuck in this cold, wet, overcrowded lifeboat. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. It's sin. It's a snare of the evil one. The psalmist has become enthralled with the passing pleasures of this world when he should be enthralled with the beauty of Christ. How did he get here? His pain. It appears to him that his faithfulness has resulted in his pain. In verse 14 he says, All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. His sight has become distorted. Nearsight, his nearsighted conclusion because of his pain his focus is on the temporal, on the things of earth. And he sees no benefit to his faithful service to God. In fact, the opposite. Instead of comfort, he's stricken. Instead of commendation, he is rebuked. The world is not going to cheer us on for our faithfulness to Christ. Just look at how the saints have been treated over the centuries. Look at how the world treated our Lord. His false conclusion is left unspoken. In verse 15 he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You would have done damage to the congregation. How damaging the psalmist's blindness could have been to others. But God was gracious. He was exceedingly gracious. He kept him through all of this. He was unable to understand his situation. In verse 16, he said he had no strength to properly comprehend. He says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He had become so entangled in his misperception of what he saw in his life and in the lives of others that he had no ability to figure out where he is at. 
the enemy would have destroyed him and his corruption would have killed him. But God is good to his people. God is so good. He is faithful to keep his flock and deliver them, deliver them, deliver us from every danger. He's been groping around in the dark. But he enters into God's sanctuary. In verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So what does the psalmist do? He goes to church. He gathers with the people of God. The gathering of the people of God on the Lord's Day is the most powerful tool that the Holy Spirit uses to keep His people. To keep us focused. To keep us on track. To keep us faithful. I don't think I can overstate that. Just how important this is. Let me repeat it. The gathering of God's people, our coming together on the Lord's Day, is the most powerful tool the Holy Spirit uses in our lives to keep us on track, to keep us focused on Him, and to keep us faithful. The preaching of the Word, the prayers of the saints, singing praise to God and to one another, the sacraments and the fellowship of the saints, our fellowship with one another, are all powerful in the life of every believer, every one of us who trust in Christ. The bottom line in all of this here is that we need to be here. If we wake up some Sunday morning and we think otherwise, it's a lie. When we see in Revelation the great multitude before the throne, they're all together. We don't, we don't see someone off a corner somewhere, you know, doing their own devotion or whatever. As good as that is. God gathers his people together. The king calls us to himself before the throne. We are his precious blood-bought people that he has called to himself to glory in his grace and to declare his praises. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. I understand that there's things that cause us to be absent and this, this year has certainly been an example of that. It's been a struggle. But the Spirit works in us. It's His work to bring us together. Part four. His vision corrected. Verses 18 through 20. God has set the wicked in slippery places. 
Truly, he says in verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. So what is the final end of the wicked? The persons who reject Christ, who don't obey the call of the gospel. Do they just go on living a charmed life, pass away quietly, and then go to a better place? Absolutely not. They're in great danger. You don't want to be them. As surely as one will eventually slip and fall on ice, they will one day stand before God in judgment. God will carry out full and perfect justice. And if you're not in Christ, that's the most terrifying prospect. Those, these people that the psalmist envied were headed to eternal ruin to be punished justly for all their crimes against the holy God. There is no good that we can do. There is no payment that we can make. There is no sacrifice that we can offer to make us acceptable before God. But good news. Christ has done the good work. Christ has made full payment. Christ has offered himself the perfect sacrifice to redeem us. We must repent and believe. They are destroyed. The wicked are destroyed. There is nothing in the sight of God. Verses 19 and 20, he says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. While God may visit judgment upon people in this life as he chooses, the consideration of God's final judgment is staggering. All people will be seen as they truly are. No matter how important a greater or great a person is in this life, they will be nothing before God's awesome majesty. Whatever great things the wicked do in this life, it will one day be long forgotten when King Jesus makes all things new and covers the earth with his righteousness. The wicked, the unbeliever, have no place here. We'll have no place there in the new heavens and the new earth. But we'll rather we'll be cast into outer darkness, eternal torment, the punishment that they deserve apart from Christ. Part five, his vision perfected. He, needs, he now sees himself clearly, and he sees God clearly. Verses 21 through 28. Pain had made him bitter. Verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, and verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. 
When our eyes are off of Christ, we easily fall prey to the world, to our flesh, and to the fiery darts of the evil one. If we think we're strong and capable in ourselves, we will quickly find ourselves in danger. He was brutish and ignorant like a beast. He was in danger of treating God and the things of God as worthless. We ourselves can become so concerned with our own comfort and our own pleasure that we, delude, we, we, we lose our delight in the things of God in God himself, in his glory. It's a very dangerous thing. He now sees God clearly. God is with him and keeps him. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. What a picture. The psalmist says, in spite of all this, my blindness, my brutish ignorance, you have kept me near you. You have never let me go. You restored my sight and right fellowship with you. And God guides him to his ultimate end, verse 23. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. God's word is our guide, a lamp to our feet. If we walk in the light of it, we won't stumble. The Bible declares God's covenant promises to us, those things he has sworn to keep so that we might know with absolute certainty that he will fulfill all that he has promised to do in his perfect time. We need to know his word, otherwise we'll be weak and vulnerable. We must read and study and meditate and hear it preached. It's our food. It's our delight. It's God's written guarantee. God is his ultimate possession and desire. Verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. When our eyes are properly fixed on Christ, eyes of faith that see his glory through all of Scripture, when our hearts feed deeply on the riches of his grace made known by all his holy prophets, when our minds are being renewed by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then the things of this world come into proper perspective they grow strangely dim, as the old hymn puts it. And God becomes, he must become, our greatest desire, our all-consuming passion. His glory demands it. Our new hearts cannot refuse it. God is his strength, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Truly, God calls us to faithfulness and remain in him. We live in him 
firmly upon a rock, a strong, impenetrable fortress. In Christ, we can never perish. For he is faithful. Even when we falter, he remains faithful. For he can never deny himself. The psalmist is back up on top of the valley now. He's back up in the light. Everything looks so different in the light. God has revealed to him all of these things in his word, through the ministry of the word, and he sees things as they truly are. God is near his refuge in contrast to the wicked, verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is faithful to you. But as for me, it is good for me to be near God. I have made God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What a transformation. What repentance. His vision is now 2020 or better. His devotion, his obedience to God, they're no longer vain, but gain, great gain. Have his circumstances changed? I don't think so. But the psalmist sees things as he ought to see, and what he sees is glorious, beyond all this world has to offer. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The Mark 8, 36. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have a son does not have life. 1 John 5, 12. Can anything in this world which is passing away compare to the riches that we have in Christ? So we've seen how the psalmist's suffering and affliction caused him to take his eyes off of God, his, his goodness, and on the things of this world. To the point that he was about to call it quits. But God graciously drew him back through the ministry of his word. There's a lot in this world to distract us from the most important thing Young people, pay attention. Make Christ the most important thing in your life. Adults too, all of us. He must be at the forefront of everything. The most important thing. The world makes promises that it can't keep, that it won't keep. But God is faithful. He will give us all. He will complete all that he has promised to do for us in Christ Jesus. Are you keeping watch over your hearts? Are the cares of this life gaining a foothold in your thinking? It's so easy to allow these things to drown out a godly passion for the, uh, uh, for the things of God. 
it's easy to grow cold, isn't it? We need to be renewing our minds daily in the Word. And we need this. This local church, Veritas. We must not forsake our gathering together here. The preaching of the Word, the fellowship of the saints, worshiping, praying, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and all the good things that our faithful God has done for us and uh, all that He has yet to do for us. Dear brothers and sisters, let's always keep our eyes on God. Let us bathe in His Word, cleansing our affections. Let us never forsake our gathering together, but rather build one another up in love that we may run this race with endurance, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our hope, our treasure, our great treasure, and our very great reward. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are so gracious to us, that you would save us, that you would call us out of this world, that you would call us out of the dangers that we were in, and that you would save us by your Son. We thank you for this. Help us to continue in this and in everything that you have given us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We now uh, come to our service where we share in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And uh, we invite you to join us. Hopefully you, uh, you uh, got one of these, the elements. Uh, we invite you to join us if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you are committed to this or another local church that preaches the gospel, if you're a baptized believer, this, this sacrament, it is... Uh, it identifies us with Christ. It helps us to look back at what he has done for us, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. So now we remember this as Christ called us to... Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11, and then we will... Then we'll partake of the elements... In verse 23, Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's go ahead and take the bread and let's take it together. <clears throat> 